everyone. This is Reverend Emmy Arnold, one of the co-hosts of the Glenwood Table Podcasts. You can refer to me with she, her pronouns. This is a podcast where we are reimagining Christian faith for the 21st century. And sometimes one of the ways that we do that is by hosting group conversations with some of our favorite friends and theologians about topics that we think are key to what we are facing as a society today and how it is that we weave our faith into it, whatever our particular faith journeys look like. This is the second episode of a two-part conversation with the Reverend Dr. J.J. Flagg and Pastor Lana about new meanings of the resurrection. Resurrection is one of the most important concepts woven into Christianity's most important holiday, Easter. It feels like Easter was about a million years ago at this point. A lot has happened since then for many of us, for the world at large. So it's a good thing that Easter isn't just one day, but a whole season called Eastertide. Eastertide is a whole season that carries us all the way to Pentecost. And in this episode, Pastor Lana and the Reverend Dr. J.J. Flagg continue their conversation about the resurrection. Why is the resurrection still important almost 2,000 years later? And do we as individuals lose our distinctiveness if the resurrection really is a thing and we really are indeed brought up into heaven? Things like queerness, disability, and race come up as questions of, these are important pieces of me. What happens to them? And is there a more liberating way of seeing this resurrection doctrine that also honors us and our distinctiveness, our uniqueness? Without further ado, enjoy this episode. And if you have any topic requests for the future, please reach out to us on Facebook, Instagram, or by email at the table at fpcglencove.org. We'd love to hear from you. P.S. The whole interview is now available as a video to watch on our YouTube channel. The theology of resurrection calls us to acknowledge that there is something within us that has been within us a long time that resurrection is calling to be. I'm processing that. There's something within us that has been within us for a long time. I'm trying to articulate this in a way that is not so mystical or so, uh, as the older folks would say, so heavenly minded that it's no (laughs) earthly good. But I do believe that the human experience and the journey of faith is about tapping into something that's within us mm-hmm. that can only come about as certain parts of us die. Mm-hmm. And so if I, if I think about my own faith journey, right, I believe that in some ways I've experienced resurrection over and over and over throughout my own life. Absolutely. There, there was a time that I bought into conservative fundamentalist theology hook line and sinker yes and and you couldn't tell me otherwise mm-hmm. i mean i shudder to think that there was a point in my life where fox news was the you know <laughs> it was the source that i went to 
to get the news because I was a part of circles that made, you know, the rite of passage being that you had to listen to folks on Fox News and you had to, you know, listen to preachers like John Hagee. I mean, I'm calling all the names and I feel really <laughs> bad. Uh, I, I'm really not trying to throw shade. I'm just saying that, that this is a part of my experience, right? And that part of me had to die in order for this, this part of me that, that is committed and has been committed to liberation of all people for a very long time, but did not know that it was the core of my Christianity until that part of me died mm -hmm. in order for that, that other part of me to come to life. I don't think that that part of me was something new. I think that it had to be uncovered and it had to go through the process of dying. So yeah. in that way, I have experienced the resurrection. That is for me where the rubber meets the road when it comes to resurrection for myself. That's right where I am as well. For me, religion is very metaphorical. It helps us, religion is like poetry. It helps us come to terms with our experiences and make meaning. And it helps us make meaning in ways that can be really harmful or it helps us make meaning in ways that can be really liberatory freedom making. And so I think being able to zoom out and say, what was the need for resurrection to emerge as a, as a notion? Why did people start believing in resurrection? You know, as far as I know, people weren't meeting people who were resurrected, you know, and the notion of resurrection did not come with Jesus. Resurrection already existed. That was already a belief that people had. This is partly rooted in a class I took on the book Revelation. In that period, what we would call the intertestamental period, even though there were still writings happening for sure. But as the Jewish people still felt very much in exile, they still felt like even though they had been able to return to their land, many of them did not return. And there were still empires coming over and they were still being occupied. They were not really free in the way that they had been free. And so they hold these memories of freedom and then here they are like longing for this freedom and it's not happening. And then they have these great heroes that go on to you know, rise up and resist these empires and they're killed. And so what happens? Does this mean that God wasn't on their side? Are they somehow sinners and this is their vindication, right? It challenges that, like the kind of classic, like good deeds equals good reward, you know, and vice versa. It problematizes that understanding and it makes people question where is God if all of these people that are rising up and resisting what we think of as evil are dying? What's happening? So I think resurrection then becomes a way to vindicate those people and say, this is how God is at work. God is at work because look, even though, even though these people were killed by these empires, God has raised them up and they are alive. So resurrection then becomes a way of thinking about God's vindication, which we see this reflected when New Testament writers write about Jesus, right? Paul says, you know, he was vindicated 
when he was raised. And this notion of Jesus coming back to life, being raised, is God's stamp of approval almost on Jesus. Like, look, Jesus is the real deal. And then, of course, now we have fundamentalists saying, well, this is why we can be Christian supremacists, because Jesus actually rose from the dead. So if, if I hold that tension of like, why psychologically the need for resurrection would even come up, I think that you can feel that cognitive dissonance in people's experience of seeing people, their heroes be killed, their heroes are getting killed, and yet they believe in a God who's going to save the day. So how is God saving the day? We need a way to explain this. Right. And so the same thing happens with Jesus. Jesus comes on the scene and there are people who believe in him. They idolize him. Even I think of Judas right now at church, we're reading uh, Cynthia Bourgeau's Wisdom Jesus. And she says that Judas is not so much, well, Judas's betrayal comes out of a broken heart, not out of a heart of hatred. Judas loved Jesus and Judas was a zealot. Judas thought Jesus was going to save the day. And Jesus just looks like he's passive to Judas. You know, Judas gets upset. And at the end of the day, Judas is like, well, after this, I'm going to make something happen here. And maybe then Jesus will, you know, stand up. And Jesus still doesn't. Right? Judas is heartbroken that his hero is not moving in the way he expects him to move. And then we think about these early followers of Jesus. He is killed. What are we going to do? How do we understand what's happening? So Cynthia Bourgeau, she actually, in another book about Mary Magdalene, looks at the gospel of Mary, and she argues that Mary's gospel, if we actually take Mary seriously, Mary actually has more of a spiritual resurrection than Mary has a physical resurrection. She doesn't really see Jesus as literally resurrecting in his body. For me, that makes so much sense. So Bishop Spong, he was an Episcopal bishop. He writes this book about resurrection as well and talks about this notion of how the Gospels get really dissonant from one another when it comes to the birth narratives and then again when it comes to the resurrection narratives now why might that be because those are the times when they have the most creativity because they're not necessarily literal events matthew and luke are the ones with birth narratives you know mark and john they don't care how jesus comes into the world they don't need a virgin mary like John just needs to say that Jesus was the word and the word was with God and the word became flesh. And then Mark is just like, oh, here's John the baptizer preaching. And then Jesus comes on the scene. And again, even they differ in Jesus's baptism. Mark doesn't need to say that Jesus was baptized for the remission of sins because it was a sign or it was a fulfillment Right. Matthew is all worried about why would Jesus be baptized for the remission of sins? Jesus is a, a person, too. You know, Mark has like the lowest Christology. And in Mark's gospel, there is no resurrection. It ends with the women finding the empty tomb. And they're afraid. That's how it ends. 
And then, you know, Matthew's ending is different. Matthew has Jesus appearing in Galilee. Galilee, Luke and John have Jesus coming back in Jerusalem. Now, what's that about? <laughs> you know, and then there's different Mary showing up at the tomb. Mary Magdalene seems to be the consistent one, but there's other women too in some of the other stories. In John's gospel, we have this beautiful narrative. It's my favorite narrative of Mary encountering the risen Christ, but it's the gardener. We were having this debate in our adult ed class the other day, like, why doesn't Mary recognize Jesus? And for me, I'm like, because it's a mythical story and it's meant to teach us a point. Again, back to my broader theory of religion, it's metaphor. It's asking us, how do we make meaning? So what I see in this story is Mary sees the gardener and recognizes Christ has resurrected, but not in person. Christ is here in this man. Christ is here in the gardener, and she can't hold on to him anymore. And that's why we get this dialogue of, you have to let go of me and go tell the other disciples. It's this story for me more about how do we hold this notion that Jesus is not physically here among us, but is resurrected in the teachings, is resurrected in the community, is resurrected in people who are willing to rise up and follow this way of love. That that is resurrection. Like you said, in that moment, Mary had her own resurrection. She had to let go of the earthly Jesus. She had to let that part of her die, that a new way of being might be resurrected, that she might become the foundation of the early church, really. She's the one who goes back and tells the disciples. She's the apostle to the apostles. It's such a more powerful reading of resurrection to me if I can say, how does Jesus show up in these moments? The people who are listening to us can't see <laughs> that I've been shaking my head yes the entire time and, <laughs> and amening and, and, and basically agreeing with everything that you've said. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I, this is why knowing you is a gift uh, <laughs> because you have a way that you bring things to the table and articulate them in a way that maybe I never could. You got me to thinking though, um, you were talking about all of the different approaches that the gospel writers take to the resurrection. And it got me to thinking about the resurrection of Lazarus. Mm -hmm. Anybody who's familiar with the story of Lazarus being resurrected, Lazarus is dying. Jesus receives word, and instead of coming right to, you know, where Lazarus is, Jesus waits four days and then shows up. And by the time he gets there, Lazarus is in the tomb. He's already wrapped, and Jesus comes, and the scripture tells us that Jesus wept. There's something powerful about Jesus weeping at the grave of his friend, knowing that in a few moments, he's about to raise him uh, to life again. What I find interesting about that story, though, 
is when Jesus tells the people who are gathered there, and I believe it's the women who, who actually do this, the women are the ones who move the stone. Mm. But before Jesus calls Lazarus out, one of the women respond and say, but he's going to smell. And that, that to me is very interesting that, that the response is, hey, I'm about to raise him to life, but, but I need you to know, Jesus, that when you do this, <laughs> he's going to smell. It makes me, it, this is just one of those instances in scripture that make me scratch my head about resurrection because mm. you would think that in this moment, there's going to be celebration because Jesus says, I'm, you know, I'm about to call him out and I need you to move the stone so that he presumably can have a clear way. And all, you know, there, there, there are all of these implications to the stone move, being moved away. And yet their focus is, but, but he's going to smell. Like, are you aware of that? I'm still stuck with the same thing. Who, who does it benefit for us to, to even preach about resurrection when we don't celebrate the resurrection that is happening in that moment? They're more concerned about what he's going to come out as than the reality that he's being raised from the dead when you were talking about all of these different accounts of resurrection, that's the one that comes to mind for me. Like, it makes me ask a lot of questions. Why do we hold on to this? If, if the benefit of resurrection is not being raised to life, but it seems that the focus is on being changed mm. rather than being brought back to life. Mm -hmm. And what I hear in that story, as you talk about it is resurrection is messy. This process of transformation is messy and not everybody's going to want the other side of you. Not everybody's going to want the resurrected you. They're worried about who you're becoming. I mean, that's a queer reading for me for sure, right? Not everybody wants you to change. They don't want you to be whatever is underneath or inside of that seed. They want you to stay in the seed. And I think what you're getting at is, I think what for me is the core question of the doctrine of resurrection. Why do we hold on to it if we've made resurrection such a narrow thing? Mm -hmm. Since we've made it such a narrow thing, are we willing to name the ways that we have perpetually weaponized resurrection? Mm -hmm. Because we talk about it as it, as if it is such a glorious thing. But if we're being honest, I think it is one of the most weaponized doctrines in Christianity today. Mm. Say more about how you see it being weaponized. I'm, I mean, just think about it within the context of folks with disabilities, right? Mm -hmm. I, I, I have, so I was born with a disability. I've never known anything else in my life except being disabled and using a chair in order to navigate the world. Because of that reality, I don't see myself as broken or needing to be fixed. Okay. There are things about my life that I would, that I would love to be different, but the, the vast majority of those things that I would love to be different are things that society has the power to change. It's not necessarily changes that need to be made in my body. Mm -hmm. And so when we frame resurrection in a way that says, 
oh, you're going to get to heaven and you won't need your wheelchair anymore. Or, or, or you'll be walking mm -hmm. around like everybody else. Well, I don't know what it is to walk. That may be a blessing for you, but that may be a curse for me because I don't know what that is. I've never experienced it. And so, yes, that sounds like freedom to some people, but it is the scariest thing in the world for me to imagine that I may have to live without my wheelchair. Mm. Yeah, and I think it goes back to what you were saying earlier about this need to see resurrection as communal, because that calls for us something to be resurrected in us about how we care for others. How do we see people? How do we think of disability? How do we understand what God is doing? Huh. I, so it's interesting that we keep going back to this communal piece, right? Um, I wonder if this idea of resurrection being communal is, is directly related to the communities of faith we come from. Mm. Because not every community of faith makes community the central focus of the way in which they process or approach their theologies. Mm -hmm. And so for me, coming from, you know, the Black church experience as my background, it is an interesting thing to me that not every community of faith prizes community. And so I think in those, in those communities, even more so, is resurrection seen as a way to bring about the community that is not present on earth. Resurrection is seen as the medium through which that community comes about because mm -hmm. resurrection is the medium through which homogeneity occurs. Mm. So it is, it is the homogeneity that we couldn't make happen, the uniformity that we couldn't make happen in our church context, mm -hmm. but resurrection will take care of that because one day we will all be made the same. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I just, I, I think this conversation is bringing up for me, I want to be able to focus on the deeply spiritual nature <laughs> of resurrection and the value of leaning into resurrection and the saving power of the doctrine of resurrection. But I can't get away from the ways in which resurrection upholds Christian supremacy and white supremacy mm. and mm. ableist supremacy and straight supremacy and and so many other uh, isms and supremacies that are present within the church and within our preaching and within our doctrine. I think I can relate with my transness. Like, you know, I think there's this question trans people often get like, do you feel like you're in the wrong body? Or do you feel like you would be better off if you had been born and assigned a different gender at birth? There's part of me that's like, oh, maybe that would be nice. But there's also another part of me that's like, but, but I would miss who I am. Like 
these experiences have made me like, yeah, there's things that I wish nobody would have to go through. And yet it's, I don't know, like I, I, I wouldn't say I'm in the wrong body. I would say I'm in my body and there are things that aren't my favorite about my body, but there's also things I love about my body and it's a mixture and that's how life is. It's bittersweet. You know, it's the both and it's holding the paradox. And I think like that's how I want to think of resurrection. Like it's the death and the life. It's the everything in between. It's how do we hold the pain and sorrow alongside of the joy? How do we hold the, the longing for something different with what is? Going back to what you're saying about the like homogeneous community, you know, another thing that I will hopefully forever remember from my revelation class, I mean, it's already been 10 years and I'm still remembering, so I feel like we're doing pretty good, is one of the things that happens over and over again in Revelation is this notion of seeing and hearing. For instance, in Revelation chapter 5, John hears the Lion of Judah, but what he sees is a lamb standing as if it had been slain. John sees a slain lamb. It's that paradox. It's how do we hold the lion and the lamb together? How do we hold those two things? But later on, chapter seven, what John hears is the 144,000 being gathered. But what he sees is a multitude of the nations. So what he hears is a homogeneous group but what he sees is a, a diverse group. And so it's like flipping the expectations, right? It's like, you expected this, you heard this and thought you were going to see this. And then you looked and that's not what it was. It was something else altogether that the lion is actually a slain lamb. The lion is a disabled lamb. And that is what's on the throne of God. That and is then, such a beautiful picture. Yeah. Um, wow. Thank you. Thank you for even laying it out. I mean, the beauty of this conversation is that one can read the text over and over and over again. I can't tell you how many times I've read that particular <laughs> passage in the right. book of Revelation and never approached it that way or never had the thought of resurrection being put in conversation with that so much so that it redeems um in some way shape or form the idea that one can be resurrected into not not having our uniqueness or our individuality left to the wayside but something that is actually celebrated in a way that welcomes unity but does not require uniformity. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, because that has always been the, the stuck point for me when it comes to resurrection. God, why is it that you would create me so uniquely mm. and then say, when I'm resurrected, nothing about that uniqueness is welcomed? Right. Those two things don't go together for me. So your, your reading of Revelation in that way 
um, kind of put some of those questions to the side for me, which I, I really appreciate. Well, we can thank uh, the Reverend Dr. Robbie Waddell, who was my <laughs> revelation professor. Uh, and he's Pentecostal. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Wow. His dissertation was on the spirit in the book of Revelation. It goes to show that we are all not a lost cause. That's the truth. That is the <laughs> no truth. matter what branch of Christianity we find ourselves falling into. And even those who are outside of Christianity, I think that this is this is a worthy conversation to think about what are what are the ways in which if my faith framework welcomes the idea of uh, resurrection, what does that look like for us? Mm -hmm. And I think that's the the hopeful note, I think, for me in resurrection is that resurrection says nothing is static. Everything is changing. It's it's interesting that you say that because that I mean that is pretty much how I characterize my faith. I think that this conversation will provide me with new language to say that in in many ways I'm resurrecting every day. Yes. Um, because there are parts of my faith that are that are dying in order for new things to be born. If there is anything to be redeemed about the doctrine or idea. Of resurrection, it is the it is the notion that resurrection welcomes fluidity and welcomes newness, yeah. uh, and not not fluidity and newness in a way that says I have to leave those things that make me different and and interesting behind, but newness and fluidity that says what what is there today for me to experience a new. And, and differently than I would have experienced yesterday. So who would have thunk that at the end of this conversation, I would be approaching <laughs> it to say that maybe I need to reclaim the language of resurrection in, in, in articulating my own faith, which I think is beautiful about this conversation because as Christians, we, we claim to be in some way, shape or form, uh, resurrection people. Uh, and so what better way to claim that than to say that resurrection is true because it is true of the faith that I've lived and lean into mm -hmm. that my faith is resurrecting constantly because mm -hmm. that is the call of resurrection people. So Yes. Amen. Well, I think that's the place to leave us off right there. Well, you thank you for creating the space for it to happen. Uh, beautiful amen we co-created something together look at god <laughs> <laughs> and it's the god within us that's yes. allowing that to happen so the divinity is one. already there it's yes already there yeah just getting out of the way and making it not even getting out of the way welcoming it welcoming it to to the surface i think is 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 really really what what this is about so Thank you for creating the space for, for our divinity to shine in, in a way that I think creates opportunity for conversation for folks to, uh, to think about and wrestle with uh, ways in which the difficult things actually can make sense and shape and form our faith in ways that are helpful uh, for us. 
Amen. Thank you so much, JJ. It was my pleasure to hold a space. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Glenwood Table Podcast. As always, you can follow us on social media. If you've enjoyed this podcast, we would love it if you would hit that subscribe button or if you would leave a review however you're listening to this podcast and let your friends and family know about it. We want to create conversation and we would love to be in conversation with you. So if you ever want to connect, as always, you can reach out to us in our Instagram, our Facebook at Glenwood Table or send us an email at the table at fpcglencove.org. And until next time, remember, you are loved and you are enough. Take care, friends. <laughs>